Hi there and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, Canada joins its allies and announces battle tanks for Ukraine. President Zelensky asked specifically for tanks, and that is what I am here to discuss. Four Leopard 2 tanks will go to the war-torn country. Why not more, though? We'll ask Defence Minister Anita Anand coming up. Plus, a Power Play exclusive. I'm very glad that finally we were able to convince our allies and partners from Western Europe that they should be much more active in supporting Ukraine. We go one-on-one -on -one with Poland's Prime Minister who led the fight for allies to send those tanks. His message for Canada in moments. Then, Minister MIA, did Transport Minister Omar Algabra ghost Canada's airline and rail CEOs during winter travel chaos? We'll have the latest on a parliamentary investigation just ahead. First, though... Canada gives the green light to send four Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine in the coming weeks. A number of Canadian Armed Forces personnel will also be deployed to help train Ukrainian soldiers on how to operate those tanks. The announcement comes a day after Germany agreed to send 14 of their own Leopard 2s and allow other countries to send theirs. The U.S. is also sending battle tanks, 31 of their M1 Abrams. These modern tanks have been the big ask from Ukraine as it prepares for a spring counteroffensive to retake territory from Russia. Russia, though, is already responding, launching missile attacks during Ukraine's rush hour this morning and killing at least 11 people. Poland has been at the forefront of lobbying allies to send Ukraine the tanks it's asking for. Earlier, I spoke to Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki in an exclusive interview. Hello, Prime Minister. Pleasure to welcome you to our program. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me. Hello. I wanted to start off on the subject of uh, battle tanks and, and specifically Leopard 2 tanks for Ukraine. Are, are you, Prime Minister, surprised at how long it took Germany to give countries like yours the green light to export those tanks? It took uh, quite a while, but I'm, I'm very glad that finally we were able to convince our allies and partners from Western Europe that they should be much more active in supporting Ukraine. Poland and Canada were, was, were very, we were very active from day one uh, when the war started. Uh, but it's very important that uh, this is a, co a coordinated effort of all of us. So, yes, I am glad. I'm, uh, it, I would say it's better late than never. And I, I'm now organizing or I try to organize uh, several other countries to join this, let's call it, coalition of Leopard 2 countries to be delivered to Ukraine. Is Canada among the countries you are hoping join that coalition, sir? I hope so. Uh, I know Canada is quite active in supporting Ukraine. I know there is quite a population of Ukrainian origin in, in, in Canada. Um, and it, it's, it's very important that the free world is uh, in full solidarity supporting Ukraine. I, I've also heard that um, Prime Minister Trudeau decided to dedicate um, some 200 uh, armed uh, vehicles um, uh, and this is very important because the war uh, is of such a nature in Ukraine that such vehicles are badly needed. This is exactly what President Zawinski was uh, telling me several weeks ago. But also on top of armored vehicles, 
modern tanks are uh, very important, extremely important on this battlefield in Ukraine. So I do hope that uh, Canada is going to be even more generous in uh, in uh, Canadian um, um, uh, supplies for uh, for Ukraine. You spoke a minute ago about the efforts to convince allies, for example, in Western Europe, to also follow Poland's lead and be willing to to send some of their tanks. Uh, what do you think has been the, the key driver of being able to convince them to do so? How have you been able to do so? Well, I, first of all, uh, we try to lead by example. Poland sent 250 uh, tanks as a first country um, uh, half a year ago or even more, more than that. Um, right now, we are ready to send 60 of our modernized tanks uh, PT, um, 30 of them PT-91. And on top of this, uh, those tanks, uh, 14 tanks, Leopard 2 tanks uh, from our uh, stores, from, from our, um, in our possession. Right. And um, we, have, we have said to our partners in Western Europe how many tanks we've already delivered. And uh, I have quoted um, President Zawinski, Prime Minister Schmihal, how important it is in, in this kind of war uh, to, to have modern tanks. Um, the Russians have several uh, thousands or some say even more than 15,000 of t tanks uh, in their stores. And uh, if we don't want to, uh, Ukraine to, uh, to be defeated, we have to be um, very uh, open, very much open and, 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 and brave in, in supporting Ukraine. These were the arguments and also, you know, if, if Ukraine, God forbid, fails, in defending uh, their sovereignty, sovereignty and freedom, it would mean only um, first step uh, in the Kremlin's mad um, um, strategy uh, to uh, rebuild their empire, the Russian empire from the past. And I think if Europe wants to have stable and long-term growth, uh, stability and peace and development uh, in a peaceful way, uh, we have to um, fend off all those barbaric attacks by, by the Russians. These were also the arguments uh, which I, I, I believe that were important for um, Chancellor Scholz, for um, President Macron, and our other allies in Western Europe. As you were making those arguments, uh... Uh, Chancellor Schultz was also, uh, you know, making some explanations as to why he was hesitant. And in particular, he was kind of um, focusing on the, the possibility that sending these tanks would escalate things further with Russia and would provoke Putin further. We've seen this morning during the rush hour in Ukraine, Russia aimed a number of missiles uh, uh, at Ukraine during that rush hour and also continued to attack electrical infrastructure. Does that underscore what Chancellor Schultz was saying? Uh, is it true that this does further provoke Putin? And, and if so, uh, your reaction to that? No, Russia's weapon is fear. Uh, our weapon should be and has to be uh, solidarity. Uh, Putin uh, behaves like uh, an actor on, from an old geopolitical theater. He's like Nero, ready to set Rome on fire 
just to carry out his objectives. And his main major objective is to re-establish the Russian Empire. He took the worst from the demons of the 20th century, like nationalism, colonialism, and all sorts of uh, feature, features from totalitarian um, uh, toolkit. And um, we have to be very strong in our reply because his success means the defeat of not only Ukraine, the defeat of the free world. And uh, as I said, if we want to uh, develop in a peaceful environment, we have to stay strong, stay together and united because it is the only way how we can prevent further uh, attacks by, by the Russians. Uh, you, you probably remember, Madam, how they were aggressive since the beginning of uh, 2008, um, in, invading uh, Georgia. Actually, they invaded Georgia in, in, in the, during the month of August 2008, and then they attacked um, Ukraine in 2014. Uh, and then 2022. So they they have insatiable appetite for other countries. They they are not behaving like normal democratic state. Not at all. Actually, the the opposite is the case. And this is why uh, the the eastern flank of NATO should be defended. And and thank you for Canadian troops to be together hand in hand with Polish troops in Latvia, for instance, in the in the format of enhanced format forward presence of NATO, and, uh, and also we have to uh, stay strong uh, defending uh, Ukraine. Just on that point, a final question for you, Prime Minister. Was this back and forth about tanks, was that the, do you, do you think the, the closest the, or, or the, the most that that sense of unity was at risk? Because the Allies have been very unified. Uh, until the past few weeks when we heard Germany kind of step outside. Ultimately, as you've pointed out, they did decide to uh, greenlight the export of those tanks and they decided to stand with their allies. But is this, has this back and forth posed the greatest risk to that sense of unity? But I, I do not want to be too much criticizing Germany because I'm very happy and grateful to the German government that they finally took this uh, very right decision. That's point number one. Number two, um, many taboos from the past are now um, overcome. They, the, the, the delivery of, of uh, heavy modern armored vehicles was not to be possible uh, just several months ago. Patriots air, aircraft systems, uh, anti-aircraft, anti-missile systems was not to be able to be delivered to Ukraine either. And, and, and here we are in yet another moment of history of this war when Leopard 2 tanks, very modern tanks, Abram, Abrams tanks from the United States are going to be delivered. The soldiers of Ukraine are going to be uh, trained. And this is why I'm, uh, I'm a strong believer that Ukraine is going to survive as a sovereign and free nation. And not to say that they are, they are brave hearts. They, they fight with lion hearts. But we have to keep deliveries of the modern supplies because we know how uh, big 
a behemoth type of uh, superpower uh, attacked um, uh, attacked Ukraine on the 24th of February last year. So it's it's our duty, our responsibility responsibility to to support Ukraine in those very dark times. Prime Minister, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That is Poland's prime minister up a little bit later in the show. We'll talk to Canada's defense minister, Anita Anand, about her decision to send four of Canada's Leopard 2s to Ukraine. First, though, turning back to things here in Ottawa, Via Rail executives had their turn in the hot seat today as the House Transport Committee continues its study of the travel chaos over the holidays. The person, though, under opposition fire, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra. CTV News' Kevin Gallagher is here with the latest on that. Hi, Kevin. I know you were listening in to everything that unfolded today at the committee. Let's start on why is the minister under fire for the op- from the opposition? Well, certainly it is the minister's responsibility. Rail is federal responsibility. And also this is now that we've learned how involved the minister was at the time. This was something that Via Rail's interim president was asked by the conservative opposition. Uh, it was MP Mark Strahl basically saying, hey, you know, when did you first hear from them? And really the interim president, uh, Martin Landry, kind of said, hey, we were in contact with his office. But I'll, I'll let you guys hear the sure. exchange that took place at committee. So we had ongoing communications with the minister's office and we set up uh, a meeting with the minister uh, post-incident to review uh, actions, not only what happened during the, uh, the events, but more importantly, the action plan to address the shortcomings. And that meeting uh, was held on January 11th. Well, and January 11th is the date now that uh, really the conservatives have jumped on saying, hey, this is a long time for the minister to personally get involved with VIA. And uh, of course, all of the travel chaos, anyone that traveled during this time, it was very frustrating for a lot of people. Uh, You know, obviously the conservatives saying, hey, the minister should have been more involved here. When uh, Martin Landry was asked directly, well, would this have made a difference? You know, he kind of skirted around that. He couldn't right. really say. And there's so many factors here that led to this being a total disaster for anyone on a train in yeah. that corridor uh, during uh, the holiday and, season. And as you mentioned, the minister's office insists that our office and Transport Canada officials were, were in contact, maybe not me specifically until a later date, but other people. Mm. Um, uh, just quickly before I let you go, we have a few seconds. I, I, you know, Speaking of Martin Landry and Via Rail, what is their explanation for, for what happened over the holidays? Why people were stranded on trains for you know 17 hours at times? Well, first they apologize. They say, hey, we, we screwed up many ways. So they owned that. But really... A big thing that he did say is, hey, climate change and these severe storms, we need to upgrade and improve our transport resiliency. Basically saying, hey, the tracks, that's a problem. It's a huge weakness. And for them, these are CN rail tracks. So VIA doesn't own or operate them. And CN had to come out and fix this issue. The first issue, of course, was trees went down on the tracks. One of these trees hit a, a, a via rail car that was stuck there. I spoke to a passenger stuck there for 22 hours on that train. Oh they had God. to get transferred off onto another train. Total headache continued, of course, on the 24th when a freight rail right. derails. That just backlogs and cancels dozens and dozens of trains. So all of these issues are, in terms of via rail's problem, they can't get CN to fix things at a certain amount of time. CN's also saying, hey, this is not an easy situation for us. They had a crew going out to to fix this issue for the first train. Uh, That crew got into an accident, terrible weather. Another crew came out, tried to fix some things. 
you know, after many hours. So the long story short is there was no other way around. Some trains were getting around. There is another track there, but there's limited tracks. There's limited flexibility for VIA to do much. Freight certainly gets a priority since it's a CN-owned track. Uh, that's something that they want to look at. They're doing a review now. They're going to review their procedures. Right. One of the big things that I thought also stood out to me was people who were on that train were charged money by VIA for food. Yeah, and VIA executives crazy. admitted today that should not have happened. Uh, but when they were asked, well, what about refunds? Right. They were like, oh, we'll sort of get back to you on that. So that's oh, an open question, too. Now, people okay. did get okay. refunds for tickets, but... The food, question mark. Okay, thanks a lot, Kevin. CTV's Kevin Gallagher. Stay tuned later tonight on Power Play. We've got the front bench coming up. Former premiers Kathleen Wynne, Christy Clark, and Daryl Dexter. Next, though, we go one-on-one with Canada's Defence Minister, Anita Anand. We'll be here. Stay with us. You know, firstly, um, we have to take a look at the size of our fleet. Um, and compared to many of our European allies, our fleet is relatively small. There are several thousand of these tanks in, uh, in Europe. We also have to take a look at serviceability rates, and the tanks that we are sending are serviceable. They are ready. Um, we also have to take a look at the sense of urgency that is required to get these over. Remember, we live in North America, and to get a 62-ton uh, tank over there, it's going to take, uh, take some doing. Canada is set to send four Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. That announcement comes on the heels of Germany giving countries the green light to send their own tanks to Ukraine. Germany itself will send 14 of them, and the U.S. is set to send 31 M1 Abrams tanks. Why is Canada sending just four? Anita Anand is Canada's defense minister. Hi, Minister. Good to have you on our program this evening. Uh, You said in your announcement today that the four tanks Canada is sending to Ukraine are all operational. How many total operational Leopard 2s are there? We are continually making sure that the entire fleet of 82 is upgraded and addressed. And so they are at various stages of serviceability. Uh, Vashi, we need to make sure that there is a constant flow of spare parts uh, that are needed to address uh, the capability. Uh, But the sending of four tanks today uh, announced is incredibly important. We are here with our allies. We are coordinated with our allies just days after the request came in from Minister Reznikov and President Zelensky. And so we'll continue to evaluate how we can offer aid to Ukraine. We already have, as you know, more than $1 billion of aid on the table. And today's announcement was extremely important. As you know, 200 vehicles announced last week, a NASAM system announced the week before. And today we are coming forward with four tanks to join our allies to offer this incredibly important capability to Ukraine in its defense of its sovereignty and stability and security. Point taken, Minister. So just to be clear, though, are all 82 operational? They're at various stage of operationability or uh, serviceability, if you will. They are really uh, important capabilities for Canadian Armed Forces so that they themselves can train on that equipment. And that's really how we arrived at the number four. Uh, We want to make sure that we have 
tanks in Canada for the Canadian Armed Forces to train on. Want to make sure that we have tanks here uh, in case ever there is a need to defend the homeland. And we need to make sure that we have our obligations to NATO and to Operation Reassurance at the forefront of our minds as well. So in layman's terms, Minister, is for the most Canada can send right now. And when you opened up the possibility of more in the future, on what basis will you make that evaluation? I wanted to make sure that we were showing a strong show, showing of support with our allies right away. And so as soon as the Remstein conference concluded, uh, the chief of defense staff and our broader team and I had a conversation, numerous conversations, to make sure that we were putting tanks on the table uh, with our allies. And it's really important from an interoperability standpoint, from a coordination standpoint, uh, to have this show of support for Ukraine at this time. However, we will continue to evaluate what more we can do, not only in the area of tanks, um, but also in terms of other capabilities that are specifically requested by Ukraine. And so this is an ongoing conversation here in Canada and with our allies. We have to remember, it's not just the four tanks that we are sending to Ukraine in the coming weeks. We are also sending munitions with those tanks. We are also sending trainers and we're also sending spare parts. And training is incredibly important because inside the tank, you have a gunner, you have a driver, you have a loader, and you have a crew commander. And you also need a maintainer or mechanic outside the tank. And all of those uh, different areas of tank expertise need to have some training attached to it. And the Canadian Armed Forces Experts, right, right. well-recognized experts around the world in training will be offering that to the Ukrainian Armed Forces in a third country. And, and I totally understand all the, all the stuff that goes with it. But to Canadians who watch and see, for example, on the same program tonight, the Prime Minister of Poland talking about how they're going to send 14, Germany will send 14, the U.S. is sending 31 Abrams, and are wondering why only four? Your answer to that criticism, right? And is this is this actually a meaningful move by your government, or or is there more that you could be doing at this juncture? As I said, we have continually put aid that is specifically requested by Ukraine on the table. That's the first point, the NASAMs, the 200 vehicles, uh, that $1 billion worth of aid, and now these four tanks. The second point is that you have to look at the denominator, how many tanks that each of those countries has in its stock, and then look at the proportion of vehicles that are being sent over. And Canada's proportion of vehicles for over 82 is relatively high compared to the other countries that you mentioned. And so I will say that we are continually there for Ukraine with meaningful aid that it is specifically asking for. And in that respect, Canada is punching well above its weight. Has the exercise of donations like this one, when, when you made the point about the proportionality, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting one. I'm thinking also of the purchase that you made from the U.S. of the uh, air defense system, the missile defense system, and the fact that the Canadian military has been waiting for one for about a decade as well. Has it made you realize that our own military cupboard is more bare than Canadians might like it to be? 
I am very much engrossed in our defense policy update at the current time, and that was requested in Budget 2022 for us to undertake, and that's what we're working on right now. We will be embarking on consultations with regards to the defense policy update. At the same time, we have to recognize that that defense policy update is layered on a very comprehensive strategy, Strong, Secure, Engaged, where we will see uh, defense spending increase by 70 percent between 2017 and 2026. And so what we are seeing now is a very comprehensive examination of continued capabilities that will be required by the Canadian Armed Forces in the short and the long term and executing on those demands. And that's why you saw me recently announce uh, the procurement finalized of 88 future fighters F-35s because we will continue to ensure that the Canadian Armed Forces have what is needed not only to defend our homeland but also to participate in our multinational alliances in NORAD and NATO and beyond. With respect Minister, I lived through the 2017-18 defense review in which the same conclusions were reached. Uh, do you regret your government not working faster to be in a different position now with respect to procurement and that so-called military covered. So, Vashi, I've been in this portfolio for just over a year, and we are moving with alacrity to execute on the delivery of aid for Ukraine, the uh, ensuring that we are uh, continuing to lead in Operation Reassurance in Latvia, where we lead the Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group, executing on an Indo-Pacific strategy, making sure we have NORAD modernization at forefront, where I recently uh, committed almost $40 billion over 20 years. So let's just say we are moving uh, very quickly to ensure the Canadian Armed Forces has what is needed to defend our country, to ensure that we are also participating meaningfully in our multilateral obligations, NORAD, NATO, and beyond. Okay, Minister, I know your, your time is limited. My point was just, I know you've only been there a year. Your government, though, has been there for since 2015. I do appreciate your time today, though. Thank you very much. I'm always looking ahead, Vashi. We've got to continue to deliver for Canadians and the Canadian Armed Forces. And I'd like to thank them for their work, especially on these tanks that are being sent over. The time and attention and care that has gone into maintaining these tanks is going to make a difference on the Ukrainian battlefield. So thank you to the Canadian Armed Forces. Okay, Minister, I'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take good care. That's Canada's Defence Minister Anita Anand. The front bench with former Premiers Kathleen Wynne, Christy Clark and Daryl Dexter is just ahead. First, though, a roundup of today's political stories. The list is next. Welcome back to Power Play on this Thursday evening. This is the list, a roundup of what's happening in politics today. First, Donald Trump can soon return to the world's largest social media site. Facebook's parent company, Meta, will restore the former president's account after a two-year suspension. Meta's vice president of global affairs says in part, the public should be able to hear what their politicians are saying, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that they can make informed choices at the ballot box when there is a clear risk of real world harm, a deliberately high bar for Meta to intervene in public discourse, we act. Trump will also have access to his personal Instagram account. Again, both were suspended following the January 6th Capitol Hill insurrection in 2021. Democrats so far have slammed the decision.
New findings tonight on pandemic misinformation. A study from the Council of Canadian Academics suggests vaccine hesitancy and misinformation led to thousands of avoidable deaths and hospitalizations. Ontario's top doctor discussed the report with CTV News Channel earlier. Misinformation has been a, a constant issue uh, across the globe to try to deal with uh, increasing vaccination. Luckily, in Ontario, 91% uh, of those over 18 have come forward and gotten two doses of vaccine. But I, I do think it's contributed in the long term a, a further protection of our communities. The report found that between March and November of 2021, an estimated 2.3 million Canadians refused or delayed vaccinations because of vaccine misinformation. Had those people been vaccinated, the report asserts 2,800 deaths could have been avoided and the health system could have saved about $299 million. Canada's privacy watchdog says Home Depot shared personal customer data with Facebook's parent company Meta without consent. We found that this was so removed from the reasonable expectation of customers uh, when they were asking for an e-receipt that even if it's not sensitive, uh, you require uh, opt-in consent. But we can, we can imagine situations in other contexts, other types of stores, other types of products where uh, knowing what a person is buying and how often could give a lot of information about that individual that could be sensitive. The Privacy Commissioner found Home Depot shared the data with Meta when customers requested emailed receipts. The information included email addresses and purchase information, which allowed Meta to target ads based on in-store purchases. Home Depot stopped the data sharing after an investigation this fall. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau drew the ire of Quebec's Premier Francois Legault this week after saying provinces should not preemptively use the notwithstanding clause. Now new numbers from an Angus Reid poll show a majority of Canadians agree. The majority of those polled were concerned by the increased use of the notwithstanding clause. The biggest discrepancies, though, between provinces were between Ontario and Quebec, the two provinces that invoked the clause most recently last year. Ontario's now revoked back-to-work legislation for striking education workers and Quebec's French language protection laws. Ontarians were the most concerned, while Quebecers were the least. On the question of whether Canada should abolish or keep the notwithstanding clause, the majority of respondents said abolish. Quebec was the only province where the majority of residents said, or respondents rather, said to keep it. And the Prime Minister has appointed a special representative to address Islamophobia. Human rights activist Amira El-Gawabi takes on the historic appointment today. She'll provide policy and program advice to government, as well as highlight Muslim contributions to Canada. We must all work together to combat Islamophobia and build pathways for success for our youth and children. But we can't do this work alone. I look forward to look, working with all levels of government, civil society, and all those with a determined vision of a Canada in which we stand up for each other. Coming up on Power Play tonight, the House of Commons is back next week and premiers and the Prime Minister finally have a date to talk healthcare. We're going to talk to the front bench about both those subjects. Former premiers Christy Clark, Clark rather, Kathleen Wynne and Daryl Dexter, there they are. They'll be with me in just two minutes. Stay right there.
I think that uh, it's just great that we're able to sit down and have a conversation together uh, and not have the discussions through the media. So I think this is a very positive thing. Uh, I don't know that anything will really come out of that other than we'll get to see what their proposal is uh, and we'll go from there. And uh, But I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that we'll get a, a deal per se on the 7th, you know, but certainly it's a start of a dialogue. Manitoba's Premier Heather Stephenson there today fielding questions about next month's highly anticipated health care funding meeting between the Prime Minister and Premiers. Should Premiers accept individual bilateral deals with the Feds to get more health care cash or put on a united front in the face of federal conditions? Let's bring in our front bench panel of former Premiers to weigh in on that. Joining us this evening, former British Columbia Premier Christy Clark, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, and former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter. Hi, everyone. Really good to see you. Uh, Kathleen, I'll start with you. Uh, I interviewed Premier Stephenson last night, and she said tomorrow, on Friday, the Premiers are getting together to kind of huddle about their approach to this meeting. If you were part of that meeting, what do you, th- what do you think would be said? Well, I think we would hear, uh, we would still hear some um, premiers saying, let's try to have a united front. Let's try to go for, uh, you know, an accord that is um, the same across the country. But honestly, Vashi, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's been pretty clear, given what the prime minister has said and given what we're hearing from premiers, that there are going to be, there are going to be different um, parameters or different deals uh, province by province. That kind of asymmetry is not new. It's just that what's new is that there's going to be more of it, I think, uh, across the country. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. The, you know, and I've said this on the show before, my big concern is how much flexibility is the deal going to allow in terms of allowing for-profit um, private care? I'm not talking about private delivery for not-for-profit. I'm talking about the for-profit profit motive coming into uh, publicly funded health care. So I think that's the big outstanding question. What's the flexibility going to be? But I think you're going to see um, bilaterals across the country. Do you think, Daryl, that's the case this week? The prime minister basically said, well, there, there might be some overarching principles where the Canada health transfer is concerned. But yes, we are kind of willing to go province by province because the conditions are different in each province. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think I think the way that Kathleen laid it out is exactly right. Uh, I think, though, you know, if, if you look at it uh, uh, from the point of view of the collective nature of the of the Council of Federation, what you're going to want to do, to the extent uh, possible, is to increase the base of the of the health transfer because uh, you know that's where the maximum flexibility lies. And the second piece of that will be to see if they can get some movement on the accelerator, the amount that that those transfers then mm-hmm. increase by, because those are the key uh, parts uh, of that uh, of that transfer system that works for the provinces. And then after that, uh, as I said, I think Kathleen's right. You'll you'll, you'll see. I, I think what the federal government's trying to call uh, shared priorities. Uh, so you'll see uh, additional um, uh, funding. Uh, around um, uh, those shared priorities. And they, you know, frankly, could and maybe should be different depending on what province you're in. Uh, Christy, on the the big question around the escalator and the big question around the Canada Health Transfer, the amount of money, the premiers are looking to see the feds increase their share from 22 to 35%, which amounts to about $28 billion a year. I just came from Hamilton where the federal minister's 
started talking about the fiscal constraints that a recession would place on them and hard decisions coming down the road. Do, do you think that will have an impact on the amount of money that gets transferred to provinces or the overarching deal that's reached here? Maybe not. It's hard to say without having kind of seen the, the guts of the deal. I think, though, there are two things that the federal government can do and should do. One, I mean, def there needs to be some money in the immediate term to help this healthcare system, which is itself ailing and is on a ventilator. And I don't know how much longer it can stumble along like this. So money for sure. Um, but then second, confront the reality that we need fundamental reform in our healthcare system. And one of these things that I, one of the things I like about the discussion so far is the federal government is saying, we want data. Because what happens now in provinces across the country to differing degrees, the feds put in 25% of the money, the provinces put in 75% uh, of the money, 35% of every budget gets dumped into hospitals and facility-based care and all the people that work there. And there is very little data about how well it's spent, how it could be spent better, that helps us track information. Now, this isn't going to be an easy thing for them to figure out, but if we could get more data out of our healthcare system and the provinces could find ways to do that um, and deliver that money uh, collectively, to the deliver that information collectively, I think that could go a long way to helping us figure out how we're going to reform the system because ultimately, Vashi, there ain't enough money anywhere in Canada to just keep dumping money into the healthcare system in Canada, which turns out to be one of the worst publicly funded healthcare systems in the Western world in terms of its performance. Well, it, right. And well, just Kathleen, on the, um, on the point around data too, the, the idea that we could know exactly, okay, if we allot X amount of dollars to this endeavor, is it successful? Does it, does it provide for better outcomes for people? The fact that actually Canadians, not just people who are making the decisions or involved in the sector can, can find that out will probably go a long way to shaping, as Christy points out, shaping better policy in the future. Yeah, I completely agree with Christy on that. You know, I think that, and, and Daryl talked about shared priorities, and this is one of them that I think there will be agreement on at the core of uh, the discussion on the 7th. And I think that if we, uh, you know, I hear Christy, I hear you in terms of the reform, and I think everyone would agree that there need to be changes. Um, I think that if there could be an initial agreement on the data collection and accountability um, and, and accountability for outcomes particularly, I think that would go a long way to starting to restore some confidence that this national project of publicly funded, uh, publicly funded healthcare is something that we all need to get behind. You know, and I think there's been a, there's been a, been a fraying of that, Bashi, a fraying of confidence in the in the healthcare system that that's pretty serious across the country. So I really think that the accountability and the data collection and the notion that we're all doing this same thing together and we are going to, we're gonna share those data and it's gonna be transparent. I think that's very important for confidence in the system. Speaking of transparency, or maybe the lack thereof, I'm going to take a quick break. On the other end of that break, the Front Bench panel is sticking around. We're going to talk about the House of Commons returning next week and uh, the federal government's priorities, maybe what they should be, what they're vulnerable on. We're going to talk about that uh, with the Front Bench next. Stay with us. Yes, Canadians are facing tough times right now. But the vast majority of Canadians 
aren't the types to throw up their hands and say, oh, it's all broken. Most Canadians roll up their sleeves and say, you know what? This is tough, but we're going to be there for each other. We're going to see each other through this. Canadians are hurting. Everything feels broken. And instead of turning that hurt into hope, Prime Minister divides people to distract from his catastrophic failings. As you heard there, Canadians sure are experiencing tough times. The Prime Minister, though, insists Canada is not broken. Pierre Polyev, on the other hand, argues Canadians think there is something broken. Who will Canadians believe when the House of Commons returns next week and that debate is front and centre? Let's bring back our front bench panel of former premiers to talk about that. Christy Clark, Kathleen Wynne and Daryl Dexter. Uh, Daryl, I'll start with you. Do, do you think that kind of competing narrative will uh, structure or form a lot of what we hear out of the House of Commons this year? Well, yes, uh, sadly, um, uh, I do. Uh, rather than you know dealing with the actual substance of what uh, what uh, people in the province and the country are going to care about, uh, I mean, I think uh, the debates in the House of Commons should be more on the on the substance. Uh, you know, the responsibility of of the uh, of the government and uh, to a, a lesser but but still very important extent of the opposition parties is to. Um, uh, strengthen the um, the resolve of the government of Canada to meet the priorities of uh, of Canadians. You know, as we talked about in in the last block, um, you know, healthcare remains uh, a, an important issue across the country. The responsibility of the government is to preserve, protect, and to promote uh, the public healthcare system, and and that's broader than just hospitalization. That includes um, long-term care and includes access to primary care. And then beyond that, uh, you know, Canadians are suffering uh, on an economic uh, basis. Uh, so, uh, you know, dealing with uh, the questions of uh, affordability, uh, people are facing um, uh, rising uh, costs associated with their mortgage as a result of the Bank of Canada uh, interest rate increases. Um, uh, housing uh, in the rental market is virtually unaffordable. Um, rising uh, costs of, uh, of food. In fact, the rising costs of just about every expense that uh, host holders have. So they need concrete policy to deal with uh, those questions. Christy, your thoughts, though, on, uh, you know, should the priority, do you anticipate the priority is cost of living or health care, or do you think something else will form the basis of the back and forth in the House? Well, I think the back and forth in the House will be this continued divisiveness from both sides, kind of dividing Canadians and setting us against each other. I long for the days when we used to have prime ministers on either side of the House, you know, or either side of the political divide, who would talk about the things that bound us together rather than the things that make us different as Canadians. And I don't think we see that in the Liberals or the Conservatives now. And I think I think that's been really bad for the country. However, on the kind of economic priorities, I think that they should be the priorities. I think they should be setting. First one is always economic growth, job growth. I think the second one that they that they need to be thinking about, Daryl touched on this, is housing. But there is a third thing, which is energy. They need to, I think, get sorted out. We are, Canada is a good guy in the world. We have um, huge reserves of oil and gas. The Japanese, the uh, Germans have come knocking, asking us for access to our resources 
because they don't want the world to be depending on all the bad guys to get their resources. They want to be able to get them from the the producer that has the cleanest moral and ethical record around uh, its extraction anywhere in the world. And, you know, if we say no, it's bad for Canadians, it's bad for jobs, and it's very, very good for people like Vladimir Putin. I feel like the, the LNG discussion is a, a good one for us to have on a, on a future panel as well, because it's a big yes. uh, topic in the House of Commons <laughs> as well. Uh, we'll save it for that. Kathleen, if, if you were, um, you know, asked by the federal liberals or the federal conservatives, what should we be concentrating on in 2023 as parliament resumes? What would you tell them? Well, I, you know, I agree with Christy and Daryl that the specific policies and, um, and solutions to what people are confronting are extremely important right now. And I don't think we're hearing enough of them coming from either side. So I think what the, what the government has to do is lay out in its, I mean, it's got an opportunity in its budget, lay out that it understands that people are struggling and what it's going to do on some of those fronts. Um, I think Pierre Polyevre has to step up and come up with some kind of solution rather than just, you know, being angry and mean. Like, that's that's not a solution to anything. And I, I think that the, as, as Christy has said, the notion that we talk about some of the things that bind us together, as opposed to saying... Um, everything's actually okay or everything's awful. You know, those are, those are two extremes. Neither of them is true because people are feeling the, the post COVID, um, angst that, uh, that I think we all see around us. And then there are all these other issues that have, uh, that have sort of piled on that. So there's a tone issue as well. And people need to, need to feel that the people they've elected understand that, that they're not going to dismiss it, and that they're actually working on some solutions. And not just assume that either telling people that they're angry and everything's broken or telling people that really the majority of people are okay, neither of those actually captures, I think, what people are feeling in the country. Mm -hmm. I have just 30 seconds. So I'll just quickly follow up with you, Kathleen. Why do you think then this are we broken, are we not, has emerged as a narrative? Well, I think that, <laughs> I think it's simple and I think that it's catchy. And I, you know, I think right now people are very grumpy, Fashi. People are worried. They're worried for their right. kids for all the reasons Daryl and, um, and Christy outlined. And so tapping into that, I think, puts the government on the defensive and doesn't and and right now we haven't got anybody who is actually i think saying yeah things are things are really a problem and here's here's what we believe is going to help and i think that's what we have to see over the next few weeks okay i'm going to leave it there i really appreciate the discussion this evening thank you so much to christy clark daryl dexter and kathleen Wynn. Today's takeaway for Power Play this evening is all about the big announcement here in Ottawa. The Defence Minister, Anita Anand, made earlier this morning. Canada is sending four battle tanks, four Leopard 2 tanks, to Ukraine. Uh, why not more? Certainly critics are asking, could there be additional tanks sent? Why, compared to other countries, for example, in Europe, is our contingent of tanks smaller? Here's Minister Anand earlier. You have to look at the denominator, how many tanks that each of those countries has 
in its stock and then look at the proportion of vehicles that are being sent over. And Canada's proportion of vehicles for over 82 is relatively high compared to the other countries that you mentioned. The minister has also insisted that those four tanks are fully serviceable. I asked her, are all 82 tanks fully serviceable? Are they all working basically and ready to go? And she said that the uh, Canadian Armed Forces was looking into that. So we don't know exactly how many of the 82 are actually ready to go should the government decide. The minister also signaled that there is the possibility of more tanks in the future. My sources tell me between 10 and 14 tanks ultimately could go from Canada to Ukraine, but each tank requires an individual plane to bring it over there, plus people to train Ukrainians on it, so it's no small endeavor. That's it for us tonight on Power Play. I'll hand things over to my colleague, Akshay Tandon. Have a wonderful evening.